Good afternoon and welcome to the business community on Calon FM. With me, Tracy Jones. And me, Heather Noble. And our topical discussion this week is around the subject of commercial property. I think it's fair to say we've all been taken aback by the whole kind of homeworking phase of COVID. And we've heard of many organisations who are rethinking their need for physical workspace. Do they actually need a desk for every member of staff? So we thought we'd have a look at the subject and see what we could unearth in terms of the impact of COVID on retail and commercial property. For some time, the high street's been experiencing great losses. We already knew that. And maybe now is the time to totally rethink what types of premises businesses need in the future. All bets are off, I think, because if you know if the retail units were empty beforehand and now we're seeing office space, I think there's going to need to be a really big shake up. What are your thoughts, Tracy? Yes, we've been talking about the high street for many months, haven't we? And um, obviously in recent months talking about the office space. And I think looking at commercial property now um, from the point of view of is it a good investment? I'm not sure I would be considering investing in commercial property right at the moment. I, I was reading a few articles and the market still seems relatively buoyant, but there seems to be quite a lot of stuff that has to settle down and i say stuff i'm not quite sure what the stuff is there's so much changing don't you think there's the obviously the people moving into offices the high street's been in flux for ages just don't quite know what the best use for some of the properties out there is going to be yeah i i think in my experience what's certainly true is that very often commercial properties form part of a portfolio for a pension fund or for a big investment fund of some sort so actually and i know on a local level it can be really hard to get hold of the people who actually own the buildings to then perhaps negotiate with them that you've had a great idea and could it be divided up into smaller units because a lot of the time the those uh, landlords are investing for the long haul aren't they so they're not really yes. as interested in the rental income more relying on the value of the property to increase which makes dealing with those landlords really really difficult like you say and I think that's one of the reasons why and, and people complain about this a lot don't they that you know a lot of town centres have a lot of charity shops because they are rates exempt business rates exempt so they're basically just keeping the, the building ticking over um, rather than it being an empty unit and it's a win-win for the landlord but with covid the government did put in place some very lengthy um, and hard to understand um, codes of practice for uh, landlords and tenants around protecting you in terms of whether whether or not you can afford to pay your rent if you've had to close your business etc uh, and i had a look at it and i thought oh this is all you know this is all quite complicated but i found a website called lexology.com and they actually put it into really plain english about what it actually means and many people who are listening who are subject to this they will know that if you can pay your rent you should if you can't, then speak to your landlord. See if you can get a payment break. See if you can get a reduction in your rate, uh, your rental, for example. And that the onus then is on the landlord to be supportive if they can. 
and should consider reasonable requests. For example, it might be a rent-free period. It might be a deferral of the whole or part of the rent for one or more payment periods or pay rent uh, over a shorter period, a shorter payment period for a limited time. So sort of monthly in arrears or something like that. Um, and also landlords waiving their entitlement to charge interest. The, um, the person who's written the article makes it really easy to understand. And I'll put a link to that um, on our website, which is the business.community, obviously. What else have you found out, Trace? I read an article um, about some research by a company called Averson Young. Uh, their research is called Big Nine, and apparently they do a review every quarter. And they've looked at the big nine office markets, which are, if you didn't know, Birmingham, Bristol, Cardiff, Edinburgh, Glasgow, Leeds, Liverpool, Manchester and Newcastle. And they say that the take up across those has been 75% and 42% below their 10 year quarterly averages. So... This, sorry, the 75% in the city centre, 42% below in out of town. So a massive drop for city centre take up for office space. They said that most markets have suffered a sharp dip in demand. However, they did say that notable activity in some out of town markets. So Manchester, Newcastle and Glasgow have seen quite a number of deals completed. With Newcastle and Glasgow actually seeing um, above average take up. So it's not all doom and gloom. There is some activity going on there. And then as we were talking about wondering what um, landlords could potentially do with empty properties, we mentioned a few weeks ago, would they turn offices into social housing or affordable housing? Um, the Scottish government has apparently been urged to ease some restrictions on com converting commercial properties into housing. Apparently, the Scottish regulations are a lot more strict than they are in the rest of the UK. Um, although the Royal Institution of Chartered Surveyors has expressed some concerns that this could lead to substandard housing. However, it is thought that allowing the conversion of commercial property into housing will maximise the existing asset base in a sustainable way. Now, sustainable you throw that into a, a conversation and it, it's it's of the moment it's very fashionable so and they're also talking about it being able to provide affordable homes and saying that it's in close proximity to pre-existing facilities which will contribute towards a feeling of community and well-being so pretty much along the lines of what we had first discussed a few weeks ago um, apparently in a UK-wide survey, which is mentioned in this article, I should say I got this article from insider.co.uk, um, a UK-wide survey, 93% of those asked said that they expected businesses to scale back their office needs in the next two years due to the amount of work undertaken remotely as a result of the pandemic. So a lot of businesses are expecting to be scaling back their office requirements. And I think one of the companies that I've, I've been reading about in, in the various articles is the companies that have set up flexible office space. And I, I imagine that they're suffering quite badly at the moment. You know, um, you know, they've set up these facilities for people to come together, 
at the time when people are being encouraged not to come together. So that, I think that's a really difficult business model to have at this point in time. Although on that, of course, there's the safety element, but with um, with what is inevitably going to be, you know, further redundancies, more and more people who are on the jobs market, there may be more people who decide to, to try and set up a business on their own. So there may be a boom. It just might not be at that full capacity. I mean, they say that there's an opportunity in every in every situation in the same way that, you know, there are often downsides. So I guess we need to watch this space. But yeah, I think it will be very interesting to see how they claw back business versus how these big town centre retail units um, act and, and, you know, what they can do. You're listening to the business community on Calon FM. And in other news, I'm going to start off with um, a couple of references to remote work policies. Probably because I'm actually researching remote work policies myself at the moment, and that's why these articles have stuck in my mind. So I'll start off with Google's remote work policy. Uh, in an article written by Justin Barriso in Inc.com, he talks about um, the fact that Google spoke to around 5,000 employees to discover remote work best practice. And the, um, the journalist, Justin, says that they provide a lesson in emotional intelligence. So let's see what you think, Heather. Number one, make team meetings a priority. Uh, the basis is that team meetings are often the only interactions you'll have with your team when working apart. So make sure they're scheduled, prioritise them. Even if it isn't urgent, be socially present. Uh, number two, show personal interest. Um, this might mean in scheduling a virtual breakfast or a virtual lunch, but using meeting time to get to know your teammates better. That's the sort of stuff that you might have done if you'd met them at the drinks machine or in the kitchen or canteen or something at work. Uh, be present. Um, they say that some engagement signals are lost when working together virtually, uh, particularly when we mute the microphone or focus intently on our laptops. So Google suggests in their best practices to make sure your camera is on. Keep your microphone off mute where practical. Now, most meetings I attend, it's the standard that everybody mutes unless they want to speak because of feedback or background noise. So it's interesting for them to, to say that. Um, but even if, if you're on mute, this next one works. Give um, nonverbal cues such as head nods, which you've just done there, Heather, on our Zoom call. You're nodding and smiling away. Thank you. While I'm on mute. <laughs> um, keep your phone face down and maintain eye contact unless you're taking notes. Number four, check in. Um, while being sure to give colleagues time and space uh, to actually um, do work, do check in with them. So send them a, an encouraging message, a news article, a funny photo, and scheduling virtual coffee breaks. Um, number five, recognize your teammates. Don't forget to say thank you or good job to a teammate. Number six, invite colleagues participation. And it says that this can be challenging for introverted colleagues to participate in group meetings and even more so in a virtual environment. So think about ways to allow people to join in, keep an eye on their expressions and their body language and invite them into the conversation if you feel that they need a chance to speak. 
Set team norms. So set clear expectations for how to work together with your team. And that this section's a lot bigger, so I'm skipping over that one. Six, use the right medium. So do you send a message or do you call? Is it video? Is it just audio? And recognise the difference between all of these different communication methods and recognising that too many calls will cause burnout, as we've mentioned a number of times on this show. And number nine, make well-being a priority. And in recognition of this, Google recommends setting up comfortable office space to physically separate your work and home life, set limits on your work day and get up every hour for a short break. I wonder how many of the Google employees actually do all of those things. And then quickly on that as well, the same author has written an article where he says that Siemens new remote working policy is also a master class in emotional intelligence. I don't know if um, that's his go-to um, way to praise a remote working policy, but a masterclass in emotional intelligence. And Siemens have made uh, a recent announcement that says that employees worldwide are allowed to work anywhere they feel comfortable for an average of two to three days a week. And this is a permanent change and one that extends beyond the current pandemic issues. And the CEO of Siemens actually said that the basis for this um, forward-looking working model is further development of their corporate culture. These changes will be associated with a different leadership style, one that focuses on outcomes rather than time spent at the office. And he went on to say that we trust our employees and empower them to shake their work themselves so that they can achieve the best possible results. We're motivating our employees while improving the company's performance capabilities and sharpening Siemens profile as a flexible and attractive employer. I like that. That's a really nice way to put it. Focusing on outcomes rather than presenteeism and trusting and empowering your employees. That's pretty good. Heather, what have you got in other news? Well, I've got a, a, a couple of things. I've got an event to start with that caught my eye. This is um, a Business Wales event. Uh, it's a free webinar. It's next Tuesday, the 11th of August, 9.30 till 11. And it's um, about how it's giving you help and guidance to carry out a full review of your business. You'll be provided with your own business template and our, their team of experienced relationship managers will support you with tools and advice to complete it from financial analysis uh, to uh, making decisions look at staffing, look at the marketplace, look at operations and suppliers. And very much it's about emerging from the pandemic situation and seeing what you can do. They say that they'll give you business insights, educational value and access to new techniques to enable you to run your business successfully. So I thought, if you're not doing anything next Tuesday morning, then it's worth having a look at that. I'll put a link to that on our website. Um, and then in the conversation, a website called theconversation.com, I visited in the past, headline caught my eye. People are missing their daily commute in lockdown. And here's why. Now, we've talked a lot about homeworking and how people like the idea that they haven't got to commute, that they literally have their breakfast and then they're at their desk. Uh, there's no standing on the platform. There's no driving. There's no waiting for a bus, cycling, whatever. But actually, they carried out a small survey and they actually started to look that for some people, uh, 
they miss the commute because it's often the only time in the day that is their time, time just for them. So, you know, we've all had those situations, haven't we, where, you know, you, at the end of the day, you just think, oh, God, I just, I'm in a bad mood or I'm stressed or I'm worn out. I just need a bit of downtime. And it's actually that commute that allows you to have that. Uh, now, there are some people who miss the commute because normally they're doing their emails or playing catch up on the way in. So there are a couple of different reasons why. But they also had some really interesting information about um, people who are uh, commuting. It can have an impact on um, divorce. There is evidence that suggests that uh, long commutes contribute to divorce, particularly if the commuter is a man. And they say that commuting by commuting by train can extend the working day because people do have the opportunity to do stuff. So unless you make a conscious decision to listen to music or read a book, which is what some people are missing, there is a flip side. And the risk is that you actually end up doing more because that hour or 30 minutes or whatever on a train, you can be doing stuff instead of just stepping off the world and just getting over the day so interesting stuff there i'll pop a link to that as well it's a really interesting article uh, on our website which is the business.community i'll finish this section with a brief mention of garmin now heather you do quite a bit of activity don't you have you got garmin products i have had garmin yes yes i have yeah but the, the recent um, hack hasn't affected your runs, has it? No, because I had, but I know in the running community, it has caused havoc. Yeah. Well, the running community might be pleased to know that Garmin have reportedly paid hackers a multi-million dollar ransom to recover the files that they'd hacked. So they were the victim of a ransomware attack. And it was reported on Sky News earlier this week that Garmin had paid the ransom. Now, you don't always get to hear of ransoms being paid. We talked about cyber attacks um, early last year, didn't we? And, and about the companies that tend not to say if they've paid. Well, Garmin apparently have said that they've paid this multi-million dollar ransom. And what they've said is that they've paid it through a cybersecurity firm it's their second choice firm, actually, because the first firm turned them down because the organisation that they were paying are sanctioned. So the malware used against Garmin has been attributed to a Russian based hacker group called Evil Corp, which if you watch Mr. Robot is the name of um, the company, this big bad company um, in season one that is, is the subject but that's an American-based group and they're not hackers. They're the victim of hackers. So it all gets a bit confusing. Anyway, the original cybersecurity company turned down Garmin because this Russian-based hacker group has been placed on US sanctions list and they, they didn't want to get into any trouble for dealing with a sanctioned company. So that's it, Evil Corp. Did you, have you heard of Evil Corp before, Heather? 
I think I'd only heard of Evil Corp on an occasion when we were talking about one of the largest global retailers of all time, which is an online platform. And I think that we were drawing some comparisons, you know, between, you know, how, how, how do you stop this is massive, you know, and it's going to impact on everybody. I think you might have made reference to oh. Evil Corp then. Oh, I do like Mr. Robot. So that explains I can't say that. I've ever seen it. <laughs> My discovery this week is something that, on the face of it, is really boring, except it isn't really boring at all. It's absolutely fascinating. It's a magazine. I was given a copy of it because there was some information in it regarding mental health at work. Uh, and uh, the person who gave it to me, Kelly, Kelly Mansell, thank you very much, uh, thought that I would find it interesting. So. I was having a scan through the magazine and it wasn't just that article that I thought was interesting. So I popped along to their website to see whether I could subscribe. Yes, the Institute of Occupational Safety and Health, their magazine, I was interested in subscribing to. Uh, and you don't need to subscribe because all the back issues are on their website, along with lots of really interesting articles. There are things about ISO standards that are coming in. Um, there are things about uh, the workplace, challenges within the workplace, health and safety, as you might expect. And then I found this amazing article about Sainsbury's and how they have had to completely change the way that they work in the wake of the coronavirus pandemic. Uh, a guy called Neil Lennox is the head of group safety and insurance at Sainsbury's. I would think that's quite a big task. And he was talking about their journey through the pandemic from all that stuff, all that panic buying in March. Do you remember when people were buying pasta and loo roll and oh, soap? Yeah. And do you remember all of that? I do. And how they just couldn't, they couldn't keep up with stuff. They had to start to think about how quickly they could get stuff through their supply chain and then, you know, the impact of the coronavirus. So then social distancing, hygiene, etc. Then he was talking about how they've had to make decisions at really fast speed to change the way that they operate so that they can bring more volume in because uh, you know, that wasn't really an issue, that they managed the flow of product really well. Then they needed to think about people who have, um, who speak different languages and how if they rewrite their policies and procedures, they've got to translate those into languages that are absolutely accessible to people who don't have English as a first language, for example. They've got sneeze screens around the building. They've had to think about shift patterns. Uh, they've had to think about um, how people access the building rather than um, congregating on a turnstile or using a security pad that they need to tap their way in. Um, and even things like smoking areas. They need to make smoking areas larger so that people can self-isolate when they have a cigarette. They've used all sorts of platforms. We've talked about Slack and you know various um, communication platforms. But they're talking about they can't have a huddle meeting at the start of the day. So they've been playing messages on video screens, putting up posters, broadcasting messages on tannoys. 
they really had to just change the way that they work. And I just thought it was really, really interesting because that job for a huge organization like Sainsbury's at the sharp end of food, they've been operating throughout the whole situation. Massive, massive work. So if you're in, looking for some interesting stories, interesting interviews, things to think about, you can actually happily pick up an IASH magazine or go online and you won't fall asleep because it's not anywhere near as dull as I thought it was going to be. It's actually a really good publication. So that is my discovery. What have you got, Tracy? You beat that. Well, I love that your recommendation is it's not as boring as I thought it would be. <laughs> honest it's honest okay so i was caught by a headline in the guardian last weekend um it said improve your relationships with advice from counter-terrorism experts oops okay so I, I i read on a little further and it's talking about a book now this book is written by um a couple of people who specialize in communication and cooperation with criminal suspects. But the point of the book is to say that their methods work at home and more to the point for this show at work too. So the book is called Rapport, the four ways to read people by Lawrence and Emily Allison. Just so happens Ooh. that I also found out that they live in North Wales as well. So equally valid for a business show based in North Wales. Emily is a behavioural advisor and clinical supervisor to organisations working with domestic violence. And Lawrence, her husband, is a professor of psychology at the University of Liverpool and head of the Centre for Critical Incident Decision Making. Now that sounds serious, doesn't it? And the book reframes the advice that they've been sharing with the police and with security forces for 20 odd years. They're making it relevant to home and to work. And the, the key, they say, to counter-terrorism is rapport, i.e. forming a connection, one built on empathy, where the power balance is shared, and that is apparently the key to not only getting terrorists to talk, but also teenagers. <laughs> oh crikey <laughs> yeah. and, and i imagine then difficult employees as well so they say they went on to say that hollywood films are misleading the interrogation scenes invariably have threats coercion or tricking a prisoner into giving something away that they didn't intend to and allison says that the, the sorry allison the allisons there are two of them um, they say that torture and coercion are wholly ineffective establishing rapport is not only the bedrock of successful relationships but also provides the best path to securing information from difficult people so Lawrence said if someone has information and you want it it's up to them to decide whether to give it to you or not they have got the power so this means that the interrogator needs to be humble, even submissive. And then they take a back seat, relinquish the reins, and they're far, far more likely to get those people to talk. And he said that the reason some interrogators find that hard is purely down to their ego. Mm. If you're being strategic and tactical, why should that threaten your ego? It's a very good point, isn't it? 
And in the book, they go on to explain some, some more details. I think it's well worth a read. They talk about the acronym called HEAR, honesty, always tell the truth, empathy. Imagine how it was when you were a teenager or how you might feel if you were a terrorist or the difficult empathy. Imagine. Imagine that. Um, autonomy, respect the right of others uh, in their, to have their um, say in the conversation and also reflection feedback the essence of what's been said to you as you're hearing it and get to give the other person an um, opportunity to clarify their position and it, it sounds like there's so much information in this book that I think it's a must-have if you're certainly if you're a negotiator or if you're dealing with with people in any way or if you've got a teenager to be honest Let, let's <laughs> that's why you're interested you've yes, got two absolutely <laughs> So key to their approach is recognising what sort of communicator you're dealing with. And then they go on to describe people as being split into four animal types. I won't go into the detail now, but they, they talk about every interaction having these four different styles based around the lion, the mouse, the Tyrannosaurus rex and the monkey. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And um, I would say that one of the reviews on um, that they've got on the website is from Malcolm Gladwell. So I don't think oh. you could get much better than that. He says that Lawrence Allison is one of my academic heroes. He does what every writer longs to do. He makes the difficult clear without losing his rigor. So that sounds like an excellent, interesting book. Whether you're dealing with, count, uh, with um, terrorists or whether you're dealing with teenagers or difficult employees. It's called Report the Four Ways to Read People by Lawrence and Emily Allison. Our profile this week is of Holly Lee Tucker. She's an entrepreneur, philanthropist and ambassador for creative small businesses. Now, Holly Tucker, I'd never heard of her before, although when I saw a photograph of her, she looked strangely familiar to me as if I had met her before. But I'm fairly, in previous lives. Fairly certain I've not met her in this life. I don't know about previous lives, Heather. So if you didn't know, she is a co-founder of Not on the High Street. And one of the things that I quickly came to find out is that she is fantastic at branding. Because everywhere I looked, Holly Tucker was presented exactly the same way. It's very attractive in terms of imagery that they used, the language that they used. It's so consistent and re really rather pleasing, actually, every thread that I followed. Did you think the same, Heather? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was that was the big thing. I didn't really go to the Not on the High Street website. I I went to Holly and Co, which is like another spin-off that she set up. And yeah, absolutely. The branding is, it draws you in and, and it may be that, well, it, it, I think it is geared very much towards women. Uh, now, whether that's, you know, why I felt drawn into it, I don't know. But um, she's actually created a brand out of just being, not just being, out of being her. Yeah. Uh, and that's, so that's a whole business about being the person who founded Not On The High Street. And which... she founded Not On The High Street back in April 2006. She co-founded it with Sophie Cornish. And apparently they founded it from their kitchen table. 
offering original items from creative small businesses. I've used it several times. I don't know about you, Heather. Yes, I have. And she, um, what was interesting, I saw a little YouTube um, video and she said that when they started, they had four staff and they had about 90 businesses listed on the website. They now have 25 staff, about 5,000 businesses listed on the website, 200,000 products listed on the website and have generated 600 million pounds into independent going into independent businesses who you wouldn't find on the high street you, you know those are big numbers um, and and small and medium sized businesses make up 99.9% of all private sector businesses in the UK and what she's done is she's she's found a way to channel us as consumers into those businesses so i think it's genius what she's done what they've done Two of them. What I found really interesting is that the website uh, had a shop to it as well. And and although it, it, it's a sort of strange to think a business advice and business hub website would have a shop, every category seemed really relevant. And it, mm. and it was focusing on, you know, I said it was focusing on me clearly because I was like, oh, I could buy that. I'd like to buy that. And clearly she knows a market. There was stationery in there. There was inspirational cards and photographs, things for children, kidpreneur section. So I'd really, really well targeted because it, it got me, hit me. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I did exactly the same. So genius. I don't know who she uses for her branding, but, you know, they obviously, they're obviously very good. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to share um, a little snippet from an article I read, an interview with her in the Financial Times. It's from a few years ago, but it talks about um, her first entrepreneurial experiences. And uh, she said from the age of 14, she knew that she had to run a business. At 15, she started a school tuck shop. How many times have we heard that from the people that we profile? Oh, yeah. Um, she made a profit which paid for a mobile phone and then she went on to first full-time job in advertising um, but the reason I mention this is because there's a different story about her first entrepreneurial experience in director magazine this one I, th I thought quite different to running a tuck shop in school but apparently from the age of 12 she spotted a way to make a bit of extra money from cleaning at a local pub and she's quoted as saying, I'd put on my marigolds and scoop up the pocketfuls of change discarded in the urinals, clean them mm. in bleach and take them home and earn an extra two pounds each day. <laughs> so, okay, quite different <laughs> stories there. Um, the one in the FT says she ran a tuck shop and the one in Director Magazine uh, says that she picked out coins from urinals and cleaned them with bleach. I'd be fascinated to um, just have clarification on both of those. <laughs> yes, I mean, maybe it is both. It's, <laughs> I'm not sure. Yeah, I'm not sure which, which is most entrepreneurial. <laughs> um, she, her brand is, is quite even across social media as well. So I don't know if you had a look at LinkedIn um, and Twitter. I mean, she is active on Twitter and LinkedIn. On LinkedIn, Holly Tucker MBE is many, sorry, I didn't mention she's got an MBE as well, is many things, mother, founder, philanthropist, ambassador. But the thing she is above all is passionate. 
founder of Europe's biggest small business marketplace, Not on the High Street, and now Holly & Co. A hub for small businesses to gain advice and inspiration. Holly has made small business her lifeblood. Now, I don't know, I, it's only just occurred to me that that's written in the third person. I can't remember what I wrote in my LinkedIn bio. Do I write it in the third person? Do you? Oh, um, oh, I don't know. I feel uh, like I've look as since we've finished recording. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I can hear you typing away at your keyboard. Typing to see live whether... Well, while you're looking at that, I also mentioned a profile on Speaker's Corner. Very similar sort of wording, but also includes the phrase, Holly sees herself as an imagineer, someone who believes in the impossible and the power of creativity. An imagineer, did you say? Imagineer, yes. Right, hang on. Let's have a look. About meet the presenters. Let's see. What do we say? Well, we sound great. <laughs> uh, we talk about our story. Yeah, we just talk about our story. I don't know why it stood out so much. Just reading that then. I never thought about yeah. that when I actually made my notes for the show. Anyway, let's move on from LinkedIn. Let's move on from us. Yes. Um, I also watched um, a short video um, on the NatWest Business Hub. Um, we'll put a link for this on the um, website, the Business Start Community. The NatWest Business Hub does appear to have a lot of resources in there. But in this video, she just gives five top tips for starting a business. It's quite a short and sweet video. Uh, and to sum it up, she says, have passion, have purpose. Uh, the triple bottom line being people, planet and profit and emotionally connect, trust your gut and find a community. So that's Holly Tucker, co-founder of Not On The High Street and now the figurehead and in, indeed linchpin of Holly & Co. We've just about come to the end of the show for this week. We do hope you've enjoyed listening and that you will join us again next week for the business community on Calon FM. You've been listening to The Business Community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. Join us next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business.